When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, listeners. Welcome back to This is the Place, a podcast channel from The Common Magazine on the New Books Network. The Common publishes literature and art with a modern sense of place. I'm Emily Everett, managing editor of the magazine and host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Narman Youssef about three pieces she translated for the recent issue of The Common. Nariman Youssef is a Cairo-born, London-based semi-freelance literary translator. She holds a master's degree in translation studies from the University of Edinburgh, manages a small translation team at the British Library, and curates translation workshops with Shadow Heroes. Her literary translations include Inam Kachachi's The American Granddaughter, Donya Kamal's Cigarette No. 7, and contributions in Words Without Borders, Bonnie Paul, and the poetry anthologies Beirut 39 and The Hundred Years' War. Nariman Youssef, thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Emily. Would you begin by describing where you're calling from and, and what it's like there and s- sort of set the scene for us? So I'm in my home in London. Um, it uh, kind of feels like late summer again. Two weeks ago, it felt like we were already entering winter, but we've had um, the blessing of another like burst of warm sunshine the last few days. <laughs> Um, I'm sitting at my desk where I've worked um, for most of the past year and a half, mm-hmm. um, and it's it's one of those buildings that are that have four sides with a courtyard in the middle. So where my desk is um, located, I can kind of see into all the neighbors' windows, and they can oh, see into mine. So yeah, so I've become very familiar with the neighbors' schedules over the past year and a half. Uh, what what area of London do you live in? In Kentish Town. Yeah, um, I I studied abroad in London, and then I lived in, lived there for a couple of years. And I lived in Kentish Town when I when I first moved. Ah, okay. Back, yeah. Uh, I've always been a, a North London girl. Yeah. So we could have been neighbors. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a nice part of London. So to start us off, I'd love to have you read a few paragraphs from one of the pieces that you translated for the issue, and it would be great if you could read it in the original Arabic first, and then do your English translation. Sure. So um, I'm going to read from Latifa Baka's um, piece, Adam's Apple. Uh, and Latifa Baka is a, a Moroccan short story writer. I think she has primarily, if not only, written short stories. She's published three collections that I'm aware of. Um, and so, yeah, I, kind of, I quite admire that her... Um, um, loyalty to the to the form because right. uh, yeah because that's um, yeah it's quite it's what I I love translating short stories as well so mm-hmm. I really enjoy translating this one and I'm going to do my best to read the first couple of paragraphs in Arabic and then English. Great. Tufahat Adam Latifa Baka. دخلت فوجدت النساء هناك في القاعة الواسعة سمعت أصواتهن الرخيمة بما يعني أنه ليس هناك رجل. العبارة الصحيحة هي ليس هناك رجل يتكلم أتقدم نحوهن بشكل غريزي كحيوان يعثر أخيرا على بني فصيلتي أخذ مكانا وأجلس لانتظار دوري قبل أن أصعد إلى عيادة الطب النفسي كنت قد صادفت لبنى السريعة أمام مدخل البناية بعينيها ناعستين اللتين يفيض عنهما 
الكحل دائما وشعرها الذي أصبح أشقر كانت تتحدث في الهاتف وترتدي لباسا جلديا أسود تبينت أنه سروال وجاكيت خيل لي أنها ابتسمت لي لكنها لم تبعد الهاتف قليلا عن أذنها لتعانقني بحرارة المعتاد في السابق كانت ترتدي ثيابا عادية وأقل صرامة والآن تحولت لهذا النمط العجيب وصبغت شعرها الطويل باللون الأصفر فجأتني لأن الغالبية الساحقة من النساء اللواتي يعرفهن يتحولن منذ ثمانينات القرن الماضي إلى الحجاب ويلتجئن إلى الاحتشام الشديد بدل اللباس العصري كنت أفكر بخصوصهن وأقول لنفسي إنهن طيبات وإن الحجاب هو مجرد إعلان عن حسن نية صادقة وغير مشروطة باعتبارهن مسؤولات بشكل مباشر عن إرساء دعائم السلم الاجتماعي في إطار مشروع التخفيف من التوتر الجنسي داخل الشارع العام مضحيات بمظهرهن الخارجي على وعسى أن يكون لهذه التضحية نتيجة فعلية على أرض الواقع هذا الواقع الغاص بالذئاب البشرية التي تتقمص أقناعة ذكور مسالمين تبدو لبنى السريعة أكثر تماسكاً وسط الجلد مما كانت عليه وسط الثوم ربما لأن الجلد كان ضيقاً في ذلك المساء البعيد الذي سأفقد فيه وظيفتي في شركة الورق والتعليب دست رأسها في صدري وعود أن تدعني أبكي وأفرغ عليها قلبي سبقتني وأخذت تنتحب وهي تخبرني أن طفلها الرضيع بعيد عنها عند والده وأن المحامي الذي تبنى قضيتها يخدعها وأن رجال دين أمهم كلهم ولاد الحرام كنا ننتظر القطار وكان المطر يغسل همومنا ويغسل إسفلت المحطة Adam's apple I walk in and find the women there in the large hall. I can hear their soft, melodious voices, which means there is no man around. More accurately, there is no man doing all the talking. I instinctively head toward them like an animal finally encountering its species. I take a seat and wait for my turn. Before I came up to the therapist's clinic, I had run into fast Lupna with the hazel eyes, the coal always smudged and the newly blonde hair outside the entrance. She was on the phone. She was dressed in black leather pants and a black leather jacket. I thought she smiled at me, but she didn't move the phone slightly away from her ear to give me a warm hug as she would have usually done. She used to dress more normally, less severely, before she adopted the style and dyed her long hair blonde. She surprises me. The transformation of the vast majority of women I know since the 80s of the last century has been toward the hijab and extreme modesty away from modern clothing. Away from modern clothes. Open parentheses. When I think about them, I say to myself that they are good women, that the hijab is just the way of announcing their unconditional good intentions to the world, given the responsibility placed on their shoulders to ensure societal peace and eliminate sexual tension from public places. They sacrifice their appearance, hoping against hope that such sacrifice will have an effect on the ground, overcrowded as that ground is with wolves dressed as peaceful human males. Close parenthesis. Fast Lupna appeared more solid in leather than she did in dress, possibly because of how tight the leather was. On that faraway evening, when I lost my job at the paper and packaging company, she buried her head in my chest and instead of letting me cry and pour my heart out, she proceeded to sob as she told me that her only child, who was still an infant, was taken away from her by his father, that the lawyer she hired for the case was a crook and that all men were assholes. We were waiting for the train, the rain washing our worries along with the station's asphalt. Thanks for reading that. It was so nice to hear the Arabic as well. Could you describe what the piece is about and where it's set for, for those who may not have read it yet? So I think it's well, it's set in a Moroccan city, but it's um, it's unnamed, I think. Um, and it's kind of, there's if someone is more familiar with Morocco, they might be able to uh, identify it by the only the I think the only hint given to the location is the. The, the the red bright like I think bright red taxis, um, mm-hmm. group taxis as well. So that might be specific because I know that the the colors of taxis are different uh, from one city to another. But it could also like narrow it down to just a few cities. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a very introspective piece. So um, it's um, the narrator is walking into and then out of. Um, the therapist's office and then waits at the taxi rank uh, where these kind of group taxis 
uh, pick people up and then um, and it's just have in conversation with her self and then occasionally with the reader um, and probably it, it starts to feel after a while that the, the, the paragraphs and sentences and sometimes clauses of sentences and parentheses are probably addressed as an aside to the reader mm-hmm. um, I don't know if you've uh, if, if you're familiar with Fleabag, this British um, comedy oh, the show, yes. the show yeah. so, uh, I love it. Yeah, so, so there is there is a sense of like you know when she when she looks at the at the camera and just said some says something aside to the the first time that happens in Fleabag, it's quite striking, and you get a similar sense with the story. There are there are sentences where you feel like she's turning straight at the reader, just like oh, but by the way, I don't. Here, here is what I think about women who wear the hijab. Would you tell us a little bit about the process of translating this, this story, like like how you start and how you finish up? So one of the reasons I love translating short stories is that I can get through the first um, draft in one or two sittings. And I kind of, I, I like, um, if we're with longer tests, I can, I start with a similar process as well. Like I, I like to translate without thinking initially. And that means that, um, what comes out is not for sharing with anyone. Like even I can't read it properly to myself because it, it's just like it can be so messy um, with a lot of options for some words and kind of question marks. And but I I like doing that first for a first draft, and then with short stories like that are not too long, I can afford to to finish the story in that form and then go back and do um, a bilingual reading, tweak a bit. And then put the Arabic aside and try to make the English work. But I feel that this initial um, kind of outpour of unthinking, like mirroring of the text, allows some things to stay in the end that are a very close, um, that are very close in structure and rhythm to the original, even if. They wouldn't. I wouldn't have been able to come up with with them in English initially because they don't really sound completely right in English. Um, but they create something new. Oh, that's really interesting. I, I, I'm always interested when translators talk about sort of the stage where you can put away the original and just and just sort of work on the the translation. Is is that important? Is it important to like put some distance between them? I think so, but also. I mean, it's it's quite it's a really tricky balance because I also don't want that distance to be too wide. Um, so sometimes I go back to the Arabic, like at later um, editing stages, and some there are, there are bits in the text that I would mark for visiting and revisiting, like and some they don't like, the, and that revisiting involves going back to the Arabic and read and saying it's like, oh, does it work in the same way? Um, so it's so while yes to make it to make the whole text work structurally um, and have have like have an effect as the text in English, there is a stage um, where I put the Arabic aside and just focus on the English translation. That doesn't mean that I won't go back to the Arabic later, <laughs> because like as as I hinted, like I kind of I like to keep some. I like to, to allow some things to sneak through into the English that would not have, um, that if the story had been written in English, it would not have sounded like that. Like there's, you know, like, of course, like this is a very, this is all very subjective and it's a very blurred line. Um, right. Yeah. But it doesn't need to necessarily sound like it was written in English. It can sound like that there can be parts of it that are unusual or, or discomforting for, for a Western audience. Yeah. yeah. Like I like to think sometimes that, okay, this is, there is no way, at least for like my, for me, for, to my ear, there is no way that this could have been written originally in English, which sometimes, you know, it, at least it used to be that the, um, the task of the translator was to, was to make it sound like it was written originally in English. But I, but I feel like, yeah, we wanted to work. We wanted to be enjoyable but not sound less it's throughout like it's been written originally in English. Is there, is there anything you can tell us about um, working with um, Hisham Busani, who's our, our fiction editor? Like, is that a different step that you wouldn't normally go through with a story? I think having a bilingual editor is amazing. Um, and it's, uh, I mean, it's something, I think it's something that needs to be part of every translation process because um, translation does feel like, 
you know, any good writing is, is, is a collaboration between, you know, at least two people. There's the person who produces the text and then an editor. And I, and like a good editor is, um, is like, is essential really for any, for something, um, to work. But I've, I've really enjoyed working, uh, with, with bilingual editors. And when I first, um, had something published in the common, um, which was what 2015. I I think that might have been my first experience of having someone who's actually from the publisher side, like not a colleague translator that I asked to look over the text for me, but 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 someone like you're ha- working with, um, like having the bilingual editing as incorporated in the in in the editing process um, by the publishers and I and I thought that was and also like the whole experience where I'm working with Jennifer Acker the whole experience was I kept citing it afterwards as one of my best editing experiences so yeah so I think yeah so I think that's a big part of it is this attention given to like okay this is not this, this is text that also has a source um, and bilingual editors do that and bring that into the process so I feel that some of the pieces you translated for us have such a beautiful, dreamy, poetic feel to them, almost like they're, they're blurring the lines between prose and poetry. And I was just thinking, like, can you talk a little bit about getting the tone of a piece right so it matches maybe the original author's intentions? Like, what choices do you make when you're translating, when you're trying to sort of pursue, preserve a feeling or, or the mood of a work? I started literary translation by... Um, dabbling in poetry and I say dabbling because it never feels like translating a poem never feels that you've done it justice um so I don't know there's something there's um there's an organization in um, London called the Poetry Translation Center and they organize workshops um where they bring in kind of literally translated texts like lost translations from various languages and the focus is on non-european um texts so it could be in a european language but from a from outside europe um and um so like the idea was kind of introduce poetry that english readers wouldn't have necessarily come across and i start when i before i got into translation when i was working in other things completely um, like 2005, I think was when I first became aware of them and I started attending those workshops and then I was like, Oh, I really enjoy this process. So I started translating poetry. Um, and I feel that this is, there is the site, like the, the translation of the sound and rhythm of sentences that has stayed with me from, um, from like my initial, um, pulled poetry. It's just something, that I kind I almost dread um, looking more closely at the process because I know that if I do that I'll I will never be satisfied with the result. <laughs> but it's, because it's I don't I and some like there are very few occasions like very very few, like there you, you can find a sentence in a in like when I'm asked to read something after I've I, I also like it's very you know it's very rare that I would go back and just read what I've translated after it's been published. Um, like just you know out for fun because <laughs> that's just self-torture <laughs> but sometimes when sometimes I just come across a sentence that okay like I actually like like that works for me in English in the same way that it works in Arabic well, of course I noticed that and other translators work a lot more um, but the sound and the rhythm the music of the sentence that's to get that I, I do I read aloud is one thing um and I th- that initial uh, kind of dumping down like everything on the page draft, I think helps with that because then you have those, you have you have the 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 breaks and um and like you know I, I even like I duplicate the punctuation and stuff and also like, of course that changes later because whatever effect something has in like the effect of short sentences in Arabic for instance is not the same as the effect of short sentences like you know the effect of long sentences like really sentences that go over several lines with commas 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 um, that's quite common in Arabic well if you do that in English it will feel like a stylistic choice so things change after a while but when I start very close, or the translation is very close to the original, it allows me to, to 
I like it helps me get some of the rhythm across. Um, and I think like if that works, and if you if you say if you say that you read you know, the English translation and find um, and get that poeticness out of it, then that that means that yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe it did work to an extent. Right. So, so there are moments where you're you're making exact word choices or debating using one word or another, but but really it sounds like it's much more holistic and and a little bit of a softer process. Yeah, I mean, I think yeah, there are things, there are words that you feel, oh, this I really have to get this word right because it because it means so much in the context of the sentence or the paragraph. But I think mostly what I focus on and where I feel. Um, like the moment I feel satisfied with something is when I feel like, okay, it's getting close to the overall rhythm um, and sound. And sometimes the sound, sometimes it's to do with having um, um, like alliterations, for instance, or having like feeling that the sound of a sentence carries the the heaviness of a of a situation in Arabic, and then like, okay, how, what 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 letters do I need to find to to kind of to have an abundance of in this sentence to make it sound heavy? Um, or yeah, I don't know. Like, I I've actually um, I just have an example in mind now from another story in the same um, in the same issue from the first sentence of um, Abdelaziz Rashidi's. Um, the sting, which is a very short piece. Yeah, so it's just like that had a lot of two S sounds and uh, in in the Arabic, like S and Th. So seen is like the S, the standard S sound, and then there's a Th, which is like TH. Um, and the and it was and it's it's describing s- s- sleep, and it's kind of it just sounded. To me, that sounded in Arabic like it, it's um, it was very heavy of sleep. Like the the, the repetition of these sounds. Um, hold on, maybe I'll just actually read it in Arabic first as well. Yeah, the repetition of these sounds in Arabic um, just really made you feel like you were you you were experiencing that quiet and and heaviness of the night. Now, um, وظلمة كثيفة تسور المكان تغلف وجوم المساحة تمت السماء أيضا متهللة مشرعة ضاحقة. So it almost happened in the translation before I noticed that and then I noticed that and tried to push it further. Um, but what I ended up with is heavy sleep, a dense darkness fences the place, wraps around its silence. There's also the sky, exultant, expectant. And so, yeah, so it's kind of, it's just, and I don't, like, I can't do that, you know, for every sentence, but it's got, sometimes a sentence strikes me in, in the original, and then it, it feels like it just has to make it through, especially like this is the opening sentence, it sets the scene. Um, and you want this kind of, it, it sets the scene of this kind of, like, mix of uh, calm and being lulled into something, into the story maybe, but also a heaviness um, and a, a bit like a, a sense of being trapped maybe slightly. So it felt, uh, yeah, it felt like a repetitions of sounds uh, were, would achieve that effect uh, in the sentence. So yeah, so that's, these are the things that I stop at and then like try, go, keep going back to, to, to get a certain effect. Oh, that's so great. I'm so glad you had that example for us. That that definitely makes it a little more clear to me what, what exactly you're doing on, on sort of the line level. Uh, so the, these pieces appear in a portfolio of writing that we published from Morocco, and, and you translated three pieces for it. I was wondering, do you feel like the pieces you translated share any common themes or similarities? Do you have a certain sense of, of Morocco or Moroccan writing after working on these pieces? Um, my instinctive reaction to say no, no, not really. Um, I mean, it's uh, yeah. I don't know. I think they're actually quite different. Um, that so there, there are two that are up that have an urban setting. But um, uh, Latifa Baka, who that who I read from um, earlier, which her her story is mainly an introspective story. So it's mainly the narrator having conversations with herself and with the reader and the. 
the city around her is some um, um, it's almost incidental. It's it has it's just some um, a source of stimulants that that act on her, and then she responds to them. Um, while the other the other story the well, pieces with the urban setting came from Abdul Latif Idrisi. I think there are two or three interconnected pieces, um, and these are very like they have they're they're very explicitly set in Tangier. He doesn't name the, the city, but they're they're very direct clues. Um, and I've never been to Tangier actually, but I had <laughs> I wanted to. He was referring to very specific landmarks, and um, and there is there is a cafe where a lot of the characters appear. And um, when I like I googled that and I found it immediately. Like this, the exact plaza where that cafe is, with all the landmarks around it. So it's very. Um, and also, there's talk about migration through the city, and I, um, so that's like very much connected with what what actually you know the with the place with the specific city, and all the even all the characters. You feel like they're kind. They're they're types that you would encounter in. in in particular locales in the city. So it's, it is very much about the place. Um, and the third, the third, the third author, um, Abdelaziz Rashidi, his, um, his pieces are also kind of centering around, around place, but that place is, is a desert. Um, so there are two short pieces and each of them deals with uh, desert communities in different ways. Um, it's very much about the nature of the desert. There's some, um, like in one of them, um, the one that I read the first line from, a scorpion features very like centrally. So it's very much about the nature and the and the, and the harshness of nature and the the, the things that um, people have to deal with in a desert um, surrounding. So they're quite like they don't really. Give me an, an like a, an idea of Morocco. Like I'm not going to go to Morocco and feel like I know it better now. And I think <laughs> I think we're. I mean, yes, they have. There's a sense of place, but and but also this is probably something that happens um, a lot more in short stories, like the strong sense of place, because you need to pull the reader in very quickly, and so you need to give them a clear sense of where they are like in to to get to get into the story quickly sense of place and short stories i think tends to be generally um, more powerful but but i think it's also important to um reflect critically about what what we expect when we read translated literature what we expect to learn about the places that the literature comes from and like it's you know a piece of fiction is not it's not the lonely planet, basically. <laughs> but, um, yeah. So, so it, it, like, it's they, yeah, like every, they all have a sense of place, but they're different. They're different, and the authors are have very different styles, um, and the the the, um, the settings of the stories are also quite different. Yeah, I, I think I do tend to agree with you. I, the the pieces did not feel like they were, you know terribly similar in any obvious way. I was just not sure if I was missing something obvious that that you had connected them with. Um, but yeah, you know, I also think just reading the portfolio as a whole, I think there is just this enormous range of material and places and yeah, cities and deserts and, and a, hu- a huge range in there. So I think that exactly. yeah, that, that in itself is, is important. Yeah. Yeah. Morocco is a big country with multiple languages as well and dialects. And so, and, you know, and, um, like the literary, um, like the literary history there in itself is going is so very like it's we we're not even touching on um, the possibilities of of different um, genres of writing and and um, um, yeah and like and 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 schools of writing that you know so it was just like we're these are stories that I think should be read for their own right. <laughs> Not as representative of Morocco. Yeah, yeah. They don't need to be a snapshot of Morocco <laughs> yeah. as a whole. Yeah. yeah. So this isn't your first time having work in the common because you also translated a story by Mona Merhi for issue 11, which was our, our first issue focused on Arabic fiction and translation. And that came out in 2016. So I'm assuming you probably translated the piece in 2015, which is six years ago, believe it or not. Um, and I was just wondering if you felt 
like much has changed in the world of translation since then, maybe in terms of either practices or ethos, or um, you were talking about this different feeling, like things don't need to sound as English anymore as they do now. Like, are there things that you feel like are shifting over time in that world? Absolutely. Yeah, I think two things have happened. Um, and I, you know, by no means saying that they started after 2015 or 16. <laughs> sure, <of course. laughs> um, it's just that these, um, there are conversations that have that are becoming more prominent in the translation world um, or trends. And one is translators reflecting on their own subjectivity. And so there are there are texts that have come out by translators about the translation craft. Um, and I, I until a few years ago, I wasn't aware of of like a wealth of such writing in in English, at least I think in French, maybe um, there were they, they, that that started that kind of writing started earlier. But I think it feels like it's um, it's taking up more space in English in the past few years. Um, so that it's it's a trend that definitely foregrounds the translator's subjectivity, and with that probably interconnected to that with that came the the other change that's an, an also an awareness of the ethical responsibility of the translator because if we are making if we are allowed to make creative choices because everyone is talking about this now and it's kind of you know it's kind of cool now to be a creative translator and it's not like your only um, your only remit is not to just produce something that's very close to the original but but also there's an acknowledgement of the, the the individual style that a translator might bring, and the 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 individual um, the the different ways that different translators would hear and experience and interpret a text differently. So with that also comes an acknowledgement of uh, we ha- there are a certain ethical choices that we can make or ignore to make in the translation itself, um, and um, like for for example it the awareness of power hierarchies between language and if especially in translating into English this is this feels like a really present thing because English is ubiquitous English is every like English takes is like is a larger than than life language um and it's so easy to just submit to the norms of of a language like that so to what extent are we allowed to maybe push against the seams um these are this is like it's, it's a stylistic choice but it's also an ethically informed stylistic choice um and i think there there are a lot more interesting conversations happening um in you know in like the area of decolonizing translation um and what does it mean and what how how does literary translation link to other forms of translation that were very part very much part of a colonial practice um and what do we what do we need to strip away to to free ourselves from that? Um, so, yeah, it's kind of it's it's very much um, it's very neat. It's a, it's a it's a very needed um, kind of like um, effort to be made, and it's and I don't think it's new. I just think in the past few years, um, it's def- this conversation has become louder. Um, so it feels like it's now having an effect on actually how how we translate and the kind of things that publishers look for and the kind of things that publishers might allow a translator to do um, in their work. Um, yeah, I yeah. feel like there's, a, there's like a little more space for, for those conversations, you know, in, in all parts of the world right now. So I hope that, yeah, I hope that's having an effect on, on yeah, what publishers are considering and, and, and choosing to publish, yeah. Um, so I know you also translate from English into Arabic, which made me wonder if there's anything much different about that process compared to translating from Arabic into English. Like, is one easier than the other? I'm sorry to interrupt, but can I actually add something to the last? Oh yes. Question? Oh yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, because I just remembered um, the the story that uh, that I translated for the Common in 2016 was um, was uh, was cool. Like, I, I just remember very clearly that one thing that um, I was so happy to be able to get away with. <laughs> and, and that's com- like completely, you know, to the credit of the common editors, is uh, is that I, I coined a word for the title. Is the, the title, so it was published under the title Haphazardia, 
I don't think that's a word that exists in English. Uh, no, <laughs> but it was some. So it it's um it's a translation of a word that in um in Arabic and especially in Egypt where um, the story was set um is uh, is ashwaiyat, which means um, um like uh, unlicensed housing areas, like quote unquote slum areas. Um, and but it has but the word in Arabic has at its core uh, a root word that means arbitrary haphazard and and that really meant something to the story because the story was all revolving around this idea of like random <laughs> randomness um so yeah so i i came up with this word and it was then there was some discussion around it and i was just so pleased to get away with it um, <laughs> so that's yeah. great do you think maybe that's something you wouldn't have got away with like couple years before <laughs> maybe 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 that's a sign that was a sign of like things beginning to shift in in the translation world oh that's so fun I'm so glad that you told us that um so now let me just ask you again like about English into Arabic Arabic into English like is there a difference in that translation process so when I work into English at the moment um that's mostly uh, literary fiction and poetry that's what I translate from Arabic into English um, and most of what I translate from English into Arabic is uh, more cultural production content so um, things for museums um, exhibition uh, catalogues you know like um, yeah like sometimes you know kind of essays um, things like that it, it shifts sometimes. So there have been instances where things shifted in either direction and it might shift more in the future. It kind of depends depends on so many factors really. But it's, uh, it's taken me a very long time to embrace the fluidity of um, my relationship to the languages that I use and live with. And, and I think that's... Um, it's quite tricky because it's, because it's not... Um, and again, this probably links to the to the shift that that might be happening in the translation world in general. Um, the the emphasis on having to translate into quote unquote your mother tongue is also changing slightly because a lot of people do not have that clear language, clear relationship to one language, and this is like unequivocally the first language. People like the you know the migrant migrant experience means that we have shifting relationships with different languages all the time. Um, and, you know, people grow up and live in and through different languages, depending on so many other factors of what's happening in their lives. Um, so this idea of like one, the mother, like your mother tongue being also, and also like, you know, some people could have, their mother tongue could be different from their father tongue. So like when they could grow up speaking three languages at home. So where do you draw the line of? So, and I think this is, it's, it's strange because you'd think that translation, literary translation is something that's, so it's so open, like it's, it's based on a premise of being open to, to influences from all over the world. But paradoxically, I feel that it's, it's been quite late in catching up with, um, the questioning of certain givens about where, you know, where, where people come from and where reside and where they reside and how we're not like you know like it's we're not just a collection of um, of un- disconnected nation states where translation is the only bridge. You know, like some of us also like you know are on the bridge. Um, most of our lives so I think I think because yeah like my relationship with Arabic and, and English and also German is, is kind of, is always in in flux um, and maybe one day I'll be translating more fiction out of English into Arabic who knows so when I was in London one of my absolute favorite places was the British Library and you're the Arabic translation manager for for the library can you tell me more about what that means what sort of things you're working on yeah, I am. Uh, so I've been working on, uh, I've been managing the translation team for um, a digitization project um, that's been running since 2012 or 13. Um, went, went live at the end of 2014. And it's um, it's an online archive um, which has different types of content, but they all 
revolve around um, the Arab world, but also specifically the Gulf area. Um, it's um, it's a partnership between the, the the project is based on a partnership between the British Library and the Qatar National Library. So it's like two national libraries coming together and pulling the um, the resources and kind of making things from the archives available. The bulk of what's on it at the moment is um, IR uh, files, which are in the office records. So that's basically um, the these are basically files that document the British colonial presence in the Gulf area. Um, so like, you know, some things date back to the like 15th century, 15th, maybe that's a bit too far. Um, yeah, like, yeah, definitely 17th century. Um, and, and up until like the mid to late 20th century, so it's quite, you know, it's like a, there's a wealth of information there, but it's also end, like the archives that the British Library alone has are endless. There's also some, like in that regard, like just um, the in the office records. And it's, there's stuff that's really fascinating because you have, you get like letters between, um, you know, like some some official in sitting in a, you know, like in, in London, going, like I've never been to the area, but kind of writing a letter about what they should do about a particular problem there. Um, so it's kind of, it just gives an insight on the kind of the bureaucracy of colonialism almost. Um, there's there are also um, man- Arabic scientific manuscripts, so um, like things from uh, you know like book old manuscripts. The library has so many. Um, like gems of those that are not that are like difficult to find anywhere else. So we basically what this project does is like puts up digital copies um, of these resources online so they can be um, accessed from anywhere in the world. And what where my part comes in is we built we build uh, a bilingual uh, archive around it. So the catalog descriptions, detailed catalog descriptions of everything go up both in English and Arabic. Um, and so far, I think there, there, there are over 2 million pages online in this project. <laughs> and it's, um, yeah, it's, it's, I think it's the, still the only um, in-house translation dedicated team at the British Library. And it was the first, yeah, it was the first fully bilingual um, project to be kind of like built this way, or like built, where translation is built in and the entire process of, from, um, of archiving and digitizing so yeah i'm quite proud to have been to have played a part in setting that up yeah it's wonderful and i I love that they're being digitized too you know i think one of my experiences of working at the british library when i was doing research was that um it wasn't super accessible (laughs) so i like the idea of things going online yeah yeah and there's definitely a move towards that in the whole of like the library um Field, libraries field, you know, there's a lot of digital archives that exist and it's um, also feel quite in time for lockdowns. <laughs> like it's, we did it like now last year, really these things came, came into their own, like you realized how valuable it was to be able for researchers to be able to continue some of their work without, you know, without leaving their homes. Yeah. I also, I, I, I don't mean to b- bash the British Library. It, this was a long time ago when I was doing research <laughs> no, there. Believe me, it's like so much longer than I think. <laughs> I'm sure there are much more on it now. I'm not going to dispute that publicly. <laughs> wow, that's quite a change of subject <laughs> where you went. Um, okay. It's, um, this is not an easy one to to think about or respond to. Um, yeah, no, it's fine. <laughs> it's fine. Um, no, it's just, I'm, okay, so if I were to write um, an addendum now, the first thing that comes to mind would be to write about political prisoners. Um, in the past six, seven years, especially, there's been an explosion of, like, of, prison industrial complexes in Egypt it's um I think don't quote me on that <laughs> but I, I don't the resources are there the resources online from human rights organizations but just the number that I remember is like con- a conservative number of new, new prisons that have been built as uh, around 20 it's probably some sources will tell you more um and you see uh, like an in-state run 
media like these kind um like very like celebratory headlines like you know being announcing new new modern presence um so um so it's kind of like there's definitely this is this is a thing that's been happening and um and there's, there's a very high number of political prisoners and some of them um held for nothing but having family connections to um groups that are opposed to the government or that the government has issues with um some have been held for months or years awaiting investig like kind of pending investigations into waiting to be charged pending investigation into either fictional or very petty charges um some serve their sentence get released and then get arrested straight away a few weeks later um and again detained awaiting something <laughs> that doesn't happen uh, so it's kind of like you know there's it's it's a very it's kind of heartbreaking to think of that in contrast with um the moment that i was writing in um in 2011 and it's i think like thinking back to that time there was a very strong sense of possibility and like things have opened up now and i think a big part of that was like from being just the experiential effect of having lived for a few weeks in a in like like the 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 lived reality of the daily lived reality during the sit-ins um etc was one that had a lot of elements from what maybe might um become a better world <laughs> and of course that didn't last even on the ground there like there are there were there were so many um, complications as well, um, but yeah, there was definitely a sense of possibility. Whatever I wrote about it at the time, that came from a very strong sense of um, the possibilities are endless, and it's very difficult to to get access to that um, now. However. <laughs> I would not want to because I, yeah, I mean, if I, yeah, like the the first like there's different. The, I can't think about Egypt without thinking of political prisoners. This is the this is really the top issue at the moment. Um, but um, but also there's another like another not unconnected um, point that I want to bring up is with which I you know I I don't think was I, like. Would have been um, like it would definitely would it definitely would have been present at the time, and it's, it was present in a lot of the coverage as well. But I don't think I've, I I think if I write something now, I would foreground it a lot more, and that's the global interconnectedness of injustice and oppression everywhere. Um, and it's kind of it became like the way that played out in 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 Egypt's political situation was. That like of course it wasn't going to like suddenly this country this like little country is like minor player in the global field was not going to be suddenly fix itself completely in you know in like in isolation from the rest of the world it what it it mattered to the established powers only as something was a stable interface so you know regardless of what happens whatever chaos lawlessness oppression is happening behind that stable interface does not matter and for that to change the world needs to change in many ways and i think so all the injustices that you know economic social racial that we face everywhere are are global struggles they're not local struggles and yeah and something like the pandemic made us you know give us a taste of that um there are probably going to be more (laughs) sorry i'm just going really pessimistic on you now (laughs) but i also sometimes like thinking about these like global catastrophes like climate catastrophes have already begun to happen like um they these things when they happen they intensify existing injustices um and sometimes i feel that like our civilization is running out of time like to fix the existing injustices so that when shit hits the fan 
where we can deal with it in a I just have one last question. We always end by asking, you know, what, what you're working on, what's next from you? Is there anything you want to tell us about? So, yeah, so I because, because I'm juggling lots of things and I have my, like, I have lots of um, work hats. So, I'm you know, three days a week I work at the British Library and um, there are other things as well. So I, 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 can't, I really, initially I started translating short stories because it was, the, they were the only things that I could fit in. Mm. and um and now i feel that i've become really attached to genre like reading writing and translating it so i have a few i have a few more short stories coming up in the palestine um feature with the common actually i think later this year i'm working on them now (laughs) um and there is an anthology um coming soon from strangers press which is part of the university of east anglia publishing arm um it's um translated together with Savat Hossein and edited by Garan Turikian. Um, it's an anthology of um, writers who write in Arabic primarily in the diaspora and primarily from Africa, so Arabic um, Arabic authors from um, Africa but based um, away from wherever their original home was. Um, and other than translation project, translation related, um, some a translation related project that I'm involved in at the moment and have been for the past year is um, uh, working with an organization called Shadow Heroes to run translation workshops in schools. So um, it's kind of it's a way to bring translation, but also um, less known languages or lesser known languages um, mm-hmm. and and uh, and forms of writing and like stories and lyrics um and like you know from parts of the world that are not normally foregrounded in the classroom uh, they might they would not necessarily be new and unfamiliar for ever for, for all the the students in the classroom but they're not normally or not often something that gets covered as part of the curriculum right. so um yeah, so I'm kind of, I'm working with Shadow Heroes as um curating some some of these some workshops and um and running um, one of them also about Arabic comics. Um, that sounds yeah, great. These are the things I'm working on right now. <laughs> you sound busy. <laughs> well, yeah. I need a holiday, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> that that just sounds great. So, Narima and Yusuf, thank you so much for joining us. It's been really great talking with you. Thank you so much, Emily. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. And, um, yeah, I feel that the conversation could have gone on for another hour. <laughs> <laughs> we certainly could have kept going, yeah. Uh, listeners, you can read Nariman's translations and subscribe to the latest issue at thecommononline.org.